welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and the Classicist is Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, this is going to be our last show of 2020, so I, I wanted to take this opportunity to do a bit of a year in review inspired by a piece that you recently had at American Greatness. And we can get a sense of your feelings about this year from the title, which is The Scars of 2020. So uh, let's just run through what you take to be some of the major developments of this year. And I'll start with this one. For the past month or so, there's been this big fight in the media and the courts over the outcome of the election. But the focus of those debates has been so narrow that it has perhaps obscured a bigger development implicit in all of this. You argue here in this piece that something fundamental about American elections changed this year, and it's never going back to how it used to be. Walk us through that. Well, I have to be careful because I was attacked uh, in the Stanford University Daily by somebody who misunderstood what I said. I didn't say that we hadn't had mail-in ballots. I said that philologically, you could see the difference by the by the obsolescence of the of the word absentee ballot, which was you know ten to fifteen percent of the electorate who was aged or sick or at work filed an absentee ballot. But most people preferred to vote in person. It was kind of a national, not a holiday, but a national event. And then we've used two new terms, early voting and mail voting. The result is that we have 100 million ballots that are not cast on Election Day. And that's the majority of them. And that means that you can't verify the signature or you can't, there's witnesses or addresses or the postmark. We had ballots that were postmarked, um, sent out and postmarked on the, and then arrived back the same day in some cases. But, you know, 10 days after the elections, ballots were still being accepted. So what I'm getting at is that it's altered election day. And that means if Donald Trump has a good, se- or anybody, but Donald Trump in this particular case had a good second debate. But what good did it meant when 80 million people had already, excuse me, 50 million people by late October, had middle of October had voted? And what did it matter about Hunter Biden, even if the media had covered it when 80, 70 to 80 million were already voted? So we've truncated the campaign season to 20 days before, and it's really altered the politics of it. And it's a mechanism to change the system because the system under the guise of the COVID quarantine had to be changed because the system I don't think was benefiting the left. And it was part of a larger project along with the filibuster and the court changes and the electoral college to change the system by which we adjudicate politics. And so I don't, it's, it's very sad, but the old idea that when I drove down a mile from my house and I went into the mid Valley fire station and there were, you know, seven people from the women of low, mostly nice elderly democratic women and they were from the league of women voters and i put my driver's license out and they had a long list they checked my name off and they said now remember mr hansen there is no politicking within 30 feet 30 yards or feet of the of the polling station so don't tell people to vote for one of the candidates make sure you go in there alone don't take your children in there with you and then you would vote and then they'd give you a little sticker 
and they cross your, and they would say, "Now we've crossed your name out. You haven't taken." And that was the way we voted. And if there was corruption, it was in big city with the voting machines. But it wasn't at that level, and we don't have that anymore. That level of authenticity. Twenty twenty, of course, was a, a year characterized by violence. These incredible spectacles that we saw in the wake of George Floyd's death, the protests from Antifa and Black Lives Matter, that in many cases resulted in parts of major cities essentially descending into anarchy. Um, even in the case of Seattle, codified anarchy. If that's not a contradiction in terms, and you know, worth noting here, this is not a novelty in American life. Riots are a recurring feature throughout American history. When you look at the track record, you realize this is not exceptional as as one might think. But you argue in this piece that there was a distinguishing factor in these cases, something that was different than what we've seen in the past. Explain what that is. Well, what was different was that the authorities, and by that term I mean the blue state governors, but specifically the blue state mayors and the local prosecuting attorneys, felt that the violence and the chaos that ensued was politically useful. And on the one hand, that it created a national landscape that Trump couldn't handle it or that he had caused it. Um, and so therefore that it was, it was not, it was not curtailed and, or, the alternative and not necessarily mutually exclusive explanation was that um, they could they didn't know how to handle it because they would have had to have people beating young students with whom they agreed with and African-Americans after the George Floyd. So they just let it go. But whatever the reason was, it, it basically said to Americans, there's two sets of laws. If you go out and you don't have a mask on, you scream and yell and spit in a bullhorn and you don't have cleanser and you're in a phalanx of protesters, that's medically okay. In fact, I'm not exaggerating. About 1,200 medical professionals, quote-unquote, doctors, nurses, medical providers, signed a petition saying that the harm from not protesting was worse than the dangers of COVID. Okay, remember that. But if you're in New York and there's four bars and they make you sit, you know, two bar stools apart, they serve you food, they have you wear a mask as you come in. In other words, they try to follow the protocol to keep their business going. They're going to be arrested. And if they had said this is a CHAS autonomous zone like Roz Simone established in Seattle and there's no jurisdiction but ours here or they had gone out and decided to you know, have a mass rally and break quarantine, then they're subject to arrest. And you can really see it in Los Angeles where Mr. George Garcon, the new Los Angeles County prosecuting attorney, he gave a a list of misdemeanors and what he called low felonies that aren't going to be prosecuted. They don't exist anymore. And that's in the wake of the George Floyd turmoil. And and some of them are not just, you know, public intoxication, but they're things like uh, using drug paraphernalia or, uh, you know, resisting arrest or causing a public nuisance or harassing bystanders. So the law, when it becomes fluid and politicized that way, it's very dangerous because now people, I think all of us accept there's certain things you can do and you'll get arrested and there's certain things you can do and you won't get arrested. And those certain things are about the same. They're not different. What's different is who you are and what you represent. It's kind of like the 
retrograde Neanderthal return to Bull Connor that used to allow the Klan to break heads of African-American protesters to, you know, for 10 or 20 minutes before he actually stopped the Klan from trying to kill people. Another part of the mass radicalism of 2020, and, and you saw this both in the streets and form of the mobs and in elite society in the way that intellectuals became very enthusiastic about throwing a lot of America's cultural inheritance overboard. It was this iconoclastic impulse, this tendency to try to write people out of American history, to remove any public commemorations of them, as we saw with tearing down the statues. And there's an understandable impulse, Victor, to just lament the people who are engaging in this behavior. But you also spend a lot of time on this piece talking about the people, often public officials, who enabled it. So make that case for us. Well, as we talk, Troy, there must be hundreds of statues that were preemptively removed uh, in major cities across the country. And they're, they're not just of, you know, a Civil War general. There are people like Jefferson or Teddy Roosevelt uh, in New York. And why were they removed? It's sort of analogous to why were people putting plywood on their stores on the eve of the election? They weren't doing it for MAGA people who ostensibly have lost the election and have not rioted and destroyed. They were doing it in case Trump won. We know what would have happened. Well, the same thing. We know who is destroying these icons. And I say icons because they entail people like Father Sarah or Miguel Cervantes, you know, or almost anybody. And uh, they even went after, I think it was the university, they went after Marcus Aurelius real dead white male. He's really dead. And he's, <laughs> and, uh, but my point is that they feel that the people who are tearing these statues down, they empathize with their race, class, gender agenda, and therefore they're not going to criminalize crime and they're not going to prosecute them. They're not going to arrest them. I know Donald Trump said it's a federal offense. He's trying to, to do that, but uh, we, we're trying to Trotskyize or wipe out a whole segment of our past. And, and it's completely antiseptic. It's, it's divorced from any reality. So where I'm here right now, there's literally tens of thousands of people who have come to the United States from Oaxaca, Mexico. And they came here not because it's a racist country, but because they treat, they're treated better in a quote-unquote, white-dominant country, if, if that term even applies, that ossified term white, than they were among people of their superficial kindred appearance in Mexico. Or they feel that the United States is a fairer, more just place. So we're basically having spoiled, affluent college kids in BLM and Antifa and, and telling everybody it's a horrible country, where people from India and Southeast Asia and Mexico who are not so-called white say, you know, I got to get to America any way I want. Well, how would that happen? Who created the America that they wanted to come to? Who were the people who wrote the Bill of Rights? Who were the people who wrote the Constitution or the De Declaration of Independence? Or who was the guy who wrote the Gettysburg Address? So these are all castigated because of their superficial appearance, and yet they created the basis of the system that creates so much freedom and capital and leisure and affluence that everybody wants to come to it, except the people who, you know, they enjoy it, but they don't, they don't want to appreciate it or acknowledge they enjoy it. And so it's a, it's kind of a phony Potemkin movement, this iconoclasm. 
There's a dynamic that recurs throughout history where a major event expedites and compounds pre-existing trends. So uh, America was already becoming increasingly class conscious in recent years, and that's feeding a lot of the political polarization as well. And you argue in this piece that the, the fallout from COVID has been an accelerant of that trend, has sort of shown new light on the class differences, particularly between the coast and the interior. Explain what you see happening there. Well, as I said, globalization, uh, the transference of a 300 million person market to a 7 billion made very wealthy people who had these cosmopolitan or international skills, you know, finance, insurance, media, law, high tech. And then those that whose labor could be Xerox, muscular labor. They were sort of the deplorables, the clingers, the dregs, and they didn't do so well. But during this lockdown and this accidental transfer, that's not accidental, but it's not, it wasn't pre-planned either, but never, this never let a crisis go to waste mentality that Gavin Newsom and Hillary Clinton have mentioned, their old Rahm Rahm Emanuel adage. We found out that, People like as we're doing today can communicate over Zoom or whatever the mechanism is and never go out of their home. And they can have all of their things delivered by Amazon and even their food by other carriers. And they do quite fine. And then not only do they do quite well, but they can adjudicate through their representatives, their influence, their power, their media connections, what others should do. So they're basically telling a guy who drives 12 hours a day from Amazon, I, I go, uh, you don't have your, your face mask on to, uh, all the time. Or they can, they're enraged when they see somebody at a, a, a restaurant who says, I got to have out, I got to have this open. And yet, where do they think they eat? Where do they, when they flush the toilet, where does that sewage go? When they turn on the tap, where does the water come from? When they go or rarely get in their car, where did the gasoline come from? Where's the natural gas that heats their home come from? It's all a product, not of some button somewhere, but of guys and gals that are working every day and they're exposing themselves to the virus and they're not making a lot of money. And so, and you can see it's this corporate idea that, in my hometown, there's all these little stores that are closed, and I can go into Walmart, and I can buy everything those stores sell with the exception that it's packed in Walmart. And once you get through the door and you get into the count, and sometimes they count, sometimes they don't, florist shop close, buy flowers at Walmart. Uh, a restaurant close, go to the indoor um, mart, mart, the food mart at Walmart. Um you want to go to Selma shoe stores, probably clothes, go to Walmart. And it's made Bezos and Amazon and Target and all the Costco, all these people fabulously wealthy. And so all of these have accentuated this class divide. And so we're becoming a class of serfs and masters. And this middle class, whether we define a small business person or a small entrepreneur or whatever, they're not doing well. This, this this globalized process has been intensified and forced multiplied by the coronavirus and the reaction to it. Victor, one thing you can't help but notice is that some of the more radical elements that we've talked about today, especially the, the sort of Jacobin instinct that you saw in the riots and the statue topplings, 
they've dried up recently, which is noteworthy because one of the things we saw over the summer is that these things took on a momentum of their own. It's not as if they were highly dependent on the circumstances on the ground. They went on long after George Floyd's death and the relevance of George Floyd to them sort of disappeared over time. And the movement sort of seemed to be self-perpetuating. But now it's kind of crickets. To, to what do you attribute that? <laughs> I wrote an article about that in National Review called Biden's Brave New World about how suddenly the vaccination, you know, appeared five days after the election, after we've been told it would be appearing in late October. But when we were told in late October, we didn't want to play politics with election day. So Pfizer said no. And then we knew, found out they were communicating with the Biden campaign and not the Trump administration or the media. And then we found out from Dick Durbin today that the stimulus, yeah, it was held up before the election. And now, you know what? It's okay to do it. And this, and it's the same thing with the riots and looting and arson. I'm not saying that Joe Biden, you know, pushed a button and it stopped it. But I'm saying something like the following. Joe Biden said in Beckett fashion, who will relieve me of this problem? And then his intermediaries went to various people who went to various people and they said to BLM and Antifa, look, you guys are on our side. We share similar agendas about capitalism, about global warming, about identity politics, et cetera. And, we're, and you're going to be really well off because Bernie Sanders, gonna, that agenda is going to be adopted. We're going to get a lot of appointments that agree with you, but you got to cool it at least until after the election, because, uh, uh, excuse me, after the election, they said you got to cool it. And before the election, the last, you know, four or five days, it started to taper off a little bit. And so the idea was um, Joe Biden is headed for a big win. And this demonstration and rioting and looting could backfire. Uh, so far, it's hurt Trump, but people are starting to get sick of it. And they could say Joe Biden-ism. Bidenism empowers it or appeases it. So just cool it for a while. And then Joe can be legitimately seen as standing for security of the suburbs. And then after it's over, keep it down. And then the, the left probably, I think I know has said, wait a minute, Joe, we were the ones that came out in 90 to 95% supposedly on mail-in voting in Philadelphia and Milwaukee and Detroit and we won the election for you. And we were the ones that sort of modulated our behavior. So we want something in return. So I, th I do think it's non-spontaneous. It's like a faucet that can be turned on or turned off. Final question for you. As we look towards 2021 and what trends might await us there, what concerns you the most? What gives you the most hope? Well, what gives me the most hope is that this is kind of counterintuitive, so I can answer the two questions at once. What should concern me is that the methods by which we access knowledge today in social media or Google is warped and politicized. So if I wanted, as I did the other day, I wanted to um, search Gascon, the new sheriff in L.A., and let him release criminals, and I've got a most of the stories that come up is far right mischaracterizes Gascon or conservatives outrage. And, and then you, you don't get 
three pages till you get the right story. And that's true of all these things about COVID or Biden or whatever. So that's scary. And then when I look at Hollywood and I find out that they're exempt from Newsom's uh, quarantine laws, and then they were deliberately picking lighter color colored actors and actresses because the Chinese are racist and demanded them to do that. Or when I look at professional sports and how Colin Kaepernick made his money or how LeBron James makes his money by boutique trashing the culture that allows him to be rich and either being indifferent to or praising the oppression going on in China. Then when I look at the media press conferences, and I see them screaming at Kaylee McEnany, just screaming at him. And then I wake up after a nap and Joe Biden is president and they're saying, what's your favorite? Uh, are those dog socks, Joe? And are you worried about the soul of Donald Trump? And how, how do you respond to a man like Donald Trump? And when you throw in academia and the suppression of free speech, which we've seen in my own case and others, much more egregiously others, I say to myself, wow, this is depressing. All the major levers of public opinion and influence, I'm not even talking about the corporate boardroom, which is pretty hard left now, but the media, the bureaucracy, the administrative state, Hollywood, entertainment, professional sports, higher education, they're all stacked for this agenda. And then I say to myself, that's the bad news. But the good news is they they couldn't even pull it off. I mean, they had to do have there was all these irregularities and Biden couldn't even campaign. And so they kind of won. Yeah, I accept the election. I, I'm not going to make the argument that I have proof that the irregularities were determinative. But my point is, six out of 10 don't believe the election was con- was conducted fairly, at least according to Nate Silver, six out of 10. And more importantly, we we may keep the Senate and we picked up a lot of seats to the House to the extent that I think we're going to win the House. And what do we have on our side? We being conservatives, we were outspent two and a half to one if you aggregate the congressional and national races. So we, we didn't have we didn't have the money. They have the money, Silicon Valley and Wall Street. Did we have the media? No, we didn't. Even Fox News is not considered conservative anymore. Did we have the Drudge Report? No, we had all even conservative media have flipped over to being liberal. So we didn't have the media. We didn't have the money. We just had the people and we almost won. And I think that is and now we're sort of aggrieved Jacksonians who say, you know what, 1824 was bad and the elite stole the election from us. But wait till 1828. We're going to come back, and we know what we're going to do this time. You're not going to catch us blind. So that's something to look forward to, and it's good news. You've been listening to the Classicist Podcast with Victor Davis Hansen. Remember, you can read all of Victor's work at victorhansen.com, and he's on Twitter at VD Hansen. And if you enjoy the show, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For Victor Davis Hansen, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.